Hello and welcome to the Life Teacher Podcast. My name is Hector Suko and here with me today is Cece Espute. Cece is a three times distinguished Toastmaster, a former U.S. Marine and a TEDx speaker. Cece's life is centered on three core values, God, family, and education. After serving as a sergeant in the United States Marine Corps for 10 years, Cece made a series of bad decisions and ended up in prison for her involvement in a drug conspiracy. She left prison and started to speak three to four times a week in jails, prisons, and drug treatment centers to inmates from a place of intense passion and personal experience, expertly explaining the somewhat confusing process of how they can get their Florida criminal records sealed, expunged, or pardoned. Her favorite presentation so far has been as a TEDx speaker. Please help me welcome Cece to the podcast. Hello, how are you? And thank you for having me. No, no, thank you, Cece. The pleasure is all mine. Cece and I go way back. We both have been involved in the Toastmasters program. I started in 2016. When did you start? I started in 2016, in ah, April. When excellent. did you start? January. Oh, wow. Wow. And that's where we met. And that's when she, well, she shared her story with my Toastmasters club. And then I was able to see her video as a TEDx speaker. But before we get to that, please tell us who is CC Espute? Well, I am a mother, a grandmother, a great grandmother. My grandson and his wife had the nerve to have the cutest baby ever. And so while I'm mad with them for making me a great grandmother, I actually love the little kid. But anyway, as you said, I am a distinguished Toastmaster, a former U.S. Marine, and I am just somebody who loves life and tries to find gratitude in everything that I do. So that's me. So let's go ahead and start with your experience in the U.S. Marine Corps. Tell us about the process of, I want to serve my country. You know, serving in the U.S. Marines was the, one of the greatest things I've ever done. There's something so selfless about veterans and how they, they go out there and they give other people the freedom because of what they do we all have the freedom to do what we want to do here at home and I was an aircraft mechanic and never did I think that I would be controlling those big planes but it actually was a uh, pretty amazing and it let me realize that I can do anything and so yes being a being a US Marine absolutely phenomenal and I would tell any young person if you're considering joining the military do it if you don't know what to do join the military it will serve you in ways that you cannot even imagine and can you go a little bit more into your process of thinking that led you to conclude I want to serve all right um all right, so I'm really not that deep. <laughs> I'm really not that deep. My dad and his brothers were all in the military. 
And in high school, I wanted to be in the military. And then one day, I was in New York, in the subway, and there was a U.S. Marine recruiter in his dress blues. Okay, don't judge me, but all he said to me was, come here, I've got something to show you. Next thing I knew, I had taken the abs fab, I had done the physical, and the very next day, I was in boot camp. I remember calling my mother and saying, I'm not coming home. I just joined the Marine Corps. But it was the best snap decision that I've ever made. We're going deep, Cece. Are you <laughs> telling me that the day after you met with this recruiter, you were in boot camp? I was in boot camp. I was in platoon 17B. It was September, Indian summer. And yes, I was in boot camp. It was one of those moments where the universe said jump and I jumped. I took advantage of that opportunity and ran with it. We're gonna have to break that down a little bit more because we have all the time in the world and we're gonna break this down hour by hour. Okay. You go up to these recruiters or they, they tell you, hey, let me show you something. And so you, you see this, you're enticed, your family has a history of serving in the military. And tell us about that moment where you said, let's do this, I'm joining. All right, so moment by moment, this is how it goes. It was a Monday morning. I was late for work, all right? I'm an island girl. New York City was traumatic for me. I'm going to work, I'm running late, it's a Monday morning. I am hating my life. I'm waiting for the train. All of a sudden, the Marine Corps recruiter in his dress blues is standing there and he says, come here, I've got something to show you. Now, I'm gonna tell you, this must have been about 9.15 on a Monday morning. I was supposed to be at work at nine o'clock. He says that to me. Have you ever considered joining the Marines? No, I hadn't. I, I don't know what I was thinking. I don't even know that I was aware of the different branches, but he took me upstairs to his office, had me do a pre abs fab, which is the armed forces vocational test or what have you. I scored a 99 on it. So blew it out of the chart. He says, what do you want to do? And I look down and there's a picture of a aircraft mechanic on right by his desk and I was like that he's like you can do anything you want with your score sign here I signed then I went to Fort Hamilton did my physical the next day I was in boot camp it was that quick so let's break it down a little bit more you sign the paper 
uh, you're in the office. Right. And so where do you, where's the next place you go back to your apartment? Nope. Never went home. Never went back home. Went right down to Fort Hamilton in, in uh, Brooklyn. You took a cab subway? No, no. They took you. They, they took me. They took me. Oh, they're like, you're ours now. Yes. We have, we have a vehicle ready for you. Right. But nobody ever said, hey, go to your place of, go to where you are and pack up. I didn't need anything. When you go into the military, they provide you with everything. I know, but where were you staying? You had to pay for rent, no? Right. I called my mother. Take care of it. When I tell you I hated my life at that moment. I was going to leave and do something. I was, I was hating life. Can you imagine coming from a small island, this island Jamaica, and then being dumped in, in New York? It was traumatic. So I'm assuming, Cece, that your mom had a key to your apartment. Yes. And then she goes in, takes your stuff, and she closes the apartment for you. Correct. Meanwhile, you're being taken to Fort Hamilton. What is that? A reserve base? It's a military base in uh, Brooklyn. And they provide you clothes? Right. Yes. When you go to boot camp, they give you everything. So you can because literally show up. Everything has to be uniformed. So you can literally show up empty handed and they provide you everything. So whatever you show up with they take and they put it away. They give you everything, toothbrush, makeup, underwear, everything. Yes. Wow. You go in, however you go in, you step off of the bus, you step into receiving, they strip you down. They take everything. How was that first night sleeping on that bed? I, you know what? I think the adrenaline was just, I don't even know that I slept. In fact, they didn't let us sleep. They didn't let us sleep that first night because they wanted us to take the ABSFAP test over to make sure that we had not cheated on the first test. So it was kind of a sleep deprivation thing. You take the test over just to make sure that you're... Nobody cheated on the test. Okay, so so help me out here. It's it's 10 o'clock at night. You're in this fort. You're in this base. And they're not letting you sleep. They're, they're telling you, run, or what are they telling you? No, to you're just talking. You're, you're, you're so excited. There's, there's things to do. Now, okay, this was a number of years ago for me. So, you know, I, I don't remember that we slept. I mean, we were getting to know each other. Um, we, were go we were being processed. You know, our physicals, we were being fitted for clothes and what have you. So, yes. I, I can't just imagine what you were doing at two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning that night because you're telling me you're not sleeping. And so I guess everything like orientation was overnight and it's just crazy to me. And that must have been probably one of the most memorable 24 hours of your life, was it not? So here's the thing. It actually was not. 
it was it, it just was just one right. of those things. It just felt right to you. It just felt right. Yes, it just felt right. Yeah. Like I needed to be there doing that because the idea that I was going to be an aircraft mechanic was just amazing. It was like I was 18 years old. That is so remarkable. That is beyond my imagination as to what somebody can go through in just 24 hours. And it's kind of almost a setup to what your life would become. I really do believe that. And so you spend how many years? About 10. 10 years in the armed forces. Right. And, and then you decide that your time is up. You're, you're about to leave, right? Correct. Okay. So I know this may be difficult, but I want to hear the story of veteran and making these life choices that put you in prison. All right. So let me back up a bit. Please. When they do studies on the different people who join a particular branch of the service, Marines are known to be risk takers. Um, they're known to jump. They're known to act first and then ask questions later. All right. So that was very evident in the way I joined the Marine Corps. So that's my personality a risk taker, right? I joined the Marines. I have a fabulous, fabulous career. I'm traveling. I'm working on these different jet engines. I'm, you know, bringing in the planes on the runway. I am loving life. Now, how I got into trouble and how my unit got into trouble is, well, we were charged with what we call drug conspiracy. And it simply means that we knew something was going on and we did not tell. That is the definition of drug conspiracy. And truthfully, I have chosen to forget the details. So when everybody, anybody asks me, what are the details? Ooh, ooh, ooh. And they want to get the popcorn and like, ooh, ooh, ooh. I can't give you the details because it was literally, I knew and I did not tell. When okay? you say unit, what do you mean? Uh, the other guy, other people, other veterans that were in the unit with me. So we, we knew, but we did not tell. We knew something was going on but we didn't tell. You're going to have to break that down a little bit more for me. You, you are a veteran now living back in the United States. And so you, what, have friends that are veterans and you guys are just hanging out together? No, no, no. So in the unit, in our, in our, in, in our platoon, right, in the Marine Corps, people were doing stuff. And we knew, and we did not go to the authorities and say, hey, so-and-so is doing this. This incident occurred while you were still on a base? Yeah. Parts of it, yes. Parts of it, yes. Okay, so kind of just like Fort Hood, you're living on a base. 
yes, I was in the Marine Corps. So I'll give you a perfect example. You and I are friends. Right. right? Your wife knows that I'm doing something illegal. She's maybe been over to my house with you. Maybe we've gone out to eat. I've paid the bill. She knows that I'm doing something illegal. She might not know the details. If the government comes in, they can arrest your wife because she did not turn me in. That is, that is conspiracy. That's the definition of conspiracy. That's and exactly what happened with us. Right? So, so your time in the Marine Corps ended when you were arrested. Oh, no, I had already, I was already, uh, I had already gotten an honorable discharge. And then it came out afterwards that I knew. And so, yes. Okay. So that changes a little bit. You were in the, you were on the base, you were discharged honorably. You were living at home. And then this thing comes out that, hey, you knew you didn't say anything and we need to arrest you. Right. How long were you in prison? Two years. For those of us that have never, ever been in prison, can you tell us a little bit of what it's like? It's those once in a lifetime experience that you never want to have again, okay? For me, going to prison one time, was enough. I spent almost a year in solitary confinement. That meaning that I got to come out one hour a day. I was very lucky. I got one hour a day. Some people only get one hour a week to come out of their cell. But I got one hour a day. And during that time, I could shower. Basically, that was it. Because there was nothing else to do. I could read a newspaper, but the other, the rest of the time, I had a chance to reflect, and I promised myself, nope, pretty much not for me, you know, not, not my kind of lifestyle. And so two years go by, and you're leaving, and this is part of your speech. Right. What happens? Tell us about that interaction when you are leaving the prison. So for me, this is where I think my story really begins. You know, yes, whatever happened beforehand, I was a Marine. I had a fantastic career. All nice. All kind of kumbaya-ish. But the moment they opened the door to my cell and said I can leave, that's when I think my life began. Because as I was stepping through the doorway, there was a guard and she very pleasantly said, see you soon. And there was no malice in her voice. She was just very pleasant. Big, nice, bright smile, see you soon. And I was a little edgy, not used to talking to people. And that's when I said, what do you mean? When she explained to me 
what she meant and explain the term recidivism, I was floored. I never even knew something like that existed. Where recidivism means going back to jail repeatedly, repeatedly. And they track it for a year. Once again, another big decision in my life. Not going to do this again. Not coming back. And so as I walked out, that was my thought. What do I have to do in order not to end back up in prison? So. It, it, to the average person, it may be just too simple. Don't do anything wrong. But in those first few weeks and months out of prison, did you ever have any inkling to commit a crime it just Never. doesn't make sense to me Never. right not even it was not even a question and in fact i wrote a book called the florida clemency guide and it talks about what do you have to do to get your record sealed expunged or pardoned and truthfully the first thing you have to do mindset mindset because people who hang out on the corner two, three o'clock in the morning, trust me, they do not have the right mindset. And there is no reason to be hanging out at that time in the morning. Regular people with regular jobs are not hanging out on the corner with friends. They got to get sleep to go to work. So first thing, you got to change your mindset. And if you change your mindset, you'll change your behavior. Absolutely. You'll change the people that you're around. And I firmly believe that God and the universe give you what you ask for. And so if that's your, that's your goal, to live a productive life, whatever that may mean to you, circumstances will come about to to get you there. You know, your story or your advice is bringing me back to a Chris Rock segment in one of his standups when he says, and I'm cutting out the language here. He says, why are ATMs open 24 hours? Who is it open for? Do you, have you ever known anyone that has gone to an ATM at four o'clock in the morning and I said to myself, I paused there because I was thinking really fast. When he said, do you know of anyone that has ever gone to an ATM at four o'clock in the morning? And then I said, no, but there's nothing wrong if somebody does that. And then he said, that has taken out $400. And then again, I said, I paused in my mind and I said, no, there's nothing quote unquote wrong with that. And then he finishes for something positive. And then I was like, there's the kicker mm -hmm. because there's nothing wrong with going out at three o'clock in the morning. There's nothing wrong with going to an ATM at three o'clock in the morning, but what are you taking out that money for? And it's, oh. it's intention. It's what do you plan to do once standing? Like what you said, standing on the corner at 3 AM, you have mm -hmm. the freedom to do that. We live in a free country. 
but what is your purpose? What is your intention? And that's where we need to draw the line of, yes, you're free to do what you want, but now we need to go a little bit deeper and say, why are you doing it? And so what you said makes a lot of sense. You're sounding like a mom a little bit, but you're also sounding like, hey, let's get your act together. Let's figure out what's wrong. And just being out here at three in the morning, it just doesn't make sense on a moral basis. Correct. Correct. And so when I've had conversations with friends like that, other veterans, they have brought it back and said, that's the reason why we're veterans. We serve so that people have the right and the freedom to stand on the corner at three o'clock in the morning if they choose to. But it's their intention. Why are they standing on the corner? Now, many times I have had an early morning trip and needed, you know, want to carry cash. And so I've gone to the ATM. You know, if I've got a six o'clock flight, yes, I might swing by the ATM and grab some cash. But it's the intention, like you said. Right. And when did speaking become a reality for you after leaving prison? A few years after, because by then I had completed probation. People were beginning to realize, especially in the uh, probation officers, among the probation officers, that I was not going to be the one to mess up. And in fact, one of the very funny things that happened was every week they would drug test me. Every week. And friends would say, why? They're picking on you. They're... And I was like, yeah, you could think that. But how about they know I'm not going to come up dirty, which is positive for drugs. They need to have a certain number of people who are successful in their program so that they keep their jobs. So how about we look at it from that point of view? So I was very happy every week to go down and to uh, a drug test because I never came up positive. But using drugs was never my thing. So I started to have a reputation of being somebody who was walking the straight and narrow. I didn't want to buy anything that fell off the back of anybody's truck. I wasn't taking rides from anybody. We were going in my car because I knew what was in my car or what wasn't in my car. The probation officers could always find me. And so it was a win-win for the probation officers and myself. And then they asked me, could you speak to, I think it was at a rehab center. And I spoke and from there it just took off. So, yeah. And so you've been in the Marines, you've been to prison. So I'm pretty sure the number one public fear is public speaking. And you were just like, nah, I'll do it. No. Ah. no. And so here is where it gets really interesting. When you come out of prison, at that time, we had two weeks 
to find a job or they sent you back. They sent you back to prison. Sent you back to prison. I ended up getting a job as a server at a local breakfast uh, restaurant. And they told me basically I was the worst server they had ever had. And I was like, that's okay, because being a server was not on my bucket list of things to do. And there's nothing wrong with being a server. I just don't have the personality for it. Remember, I'm making snap decisions. and So being a server was a... Yeah, it was a... It was a lower energy than I like to put out. I became a photographer, uh, and the story is really funny. One of the other servers said to me, she knew I was a photographer, and we were making $2.15 an hour plus tips. She comes to me and she says, Cece, I'm getting married. I only have $500. Would you be my wedding photographer? I was like, yeah. Another snap decision, because I knew $2.15, I was going to have to work a lot of hours to make $500. Right away. Said yes, took $50 of that, went and got a business license. So that's how I became a photographer. Never wanting to have to tell people about my past, I then became known as an event photographer. I would go in do events, right? I didn't have to tell anybody my story. And of course, I gave up the job as a server. They fired me. I left. It was within 30 seconds of each other of that decision being made. I had the pleasure of being with Zig Ziglar before he passed away. And he was on stage, and he said, That whole campaign about public speaking being your number one fear, it was an ad campaign back in the early 80s that he and his advertising manager came up with to sell their products. Has to be one of the most successful ad campaigns right up there with Got Milk. Remember, everybody was going, mustache got milk? Well, they came up with the idea of just telling people that their number one fear is public speaking. Guess what? Everybody believes that. And so those of us that heard that, we were like, really? Are we afraid of public speaking? Or are we afraid of speaking in public about something that we don't know anything about. Yes, that's our fear. But not getting up and speaking. Because if you know something, if you know what you know that you know that you know it, you can speak about it to anyone. I 100% agree. If you can talk to your coworkers about what you did over the weekend, you can stand up in front of 30 people and talk about anything that you want and anything that you know about. Exactly. If you've never motivated anyone in your life to do something, 
you're not going to stand up and motivate 30 people to go out and live their dreams, but you have stories and people want to hear those stories. And it just takes a lot of courage and bravery to go up and do it if you've never done it before. I tend to agree with you. It should not be the most fearful thing that the public uh, has. Right. And so you're speaking. And so when does TEDx become a possibility? All right. So another life-changing moment where I just jumped. I'm speaking to small groups, telling them about the subject that I know best. Recreating your life once you've made a bad decision. And so that bad decision can be, you know, something that ends you up in prison, divorce, bankruptcy, any of those things. Recreating your life has, the steps are the same, no matter what the incident was. I end up joining Toastmasters because my business coach at the time said, Cece, yeah, you know, you think you're doing all, you think you're being all of that, speaking in jails and prisons. But if you really want to have effective change, if you really want to implement procedures, if you really want to implement procedures and policies, you need to be able to speak to the decision makers. I was like, oh, okay. And he's like, yes, when you're in prison, you can talk and you can use slang. But when you're talking to policymakers, they don't understand that. So you need to clean up the way you speak. I joined Toastmasters. One of my very best friends and I, we were in Key West, just relaxing. And we said, okay, so what's next? Now that we're Toastmasters, what's next? Somebody threw out the idea of TEDx. I didn't, know, I didn't know anything about TEDx at that point. I'm going to say I didn't even know how to spell it, but okay, let's face it. I, I, everybody knows how to spell TEDx. We decided we were going to volunteer. We Google it, and lo and behold, within, I think, three or four weeks, there was going to be a TEDx event. And so we send off emails Oh, please, can we volunteer? We volunteered that year. We volunteered the next year. Didn't think anything more about it. Then I applied to be a speaker, not thinking that one had anything to do with the other. And then I got accepted to be a TEDx speaker. But in volunteering, it gave me an understanding of what goes on behind the scenes. See, in my life, I have never wanted to be number one. I don't, I don't have to be the person out there on stage. I like to be the person in the background, understanding how things work. Hence, being an aircraft mechanic, the mechanics of things, the logistics of things. You know, coming out of prison, what does it do? What do I have to do to not go back to prison? The mechanics, the logistics. And so the same thing with TEDx. And I got accepted to be a TEDx speaker. And that was 
a whole new phase of my life. And you get accepted. I mean, what goes through your mind? Did you know what you were going to speak about right away? Did somebody call you and say, hey, we need to set it up. You need to start practicing. Can you take us a little bit through that process? Every TEDx event has a theme. The theme that year for TEDx Boca was reinventing yourself. So, of course, everybody thought that because I was a photographer, reinventing yourself meant taking a new picture kind of a thing. I came up with the idea that it's hard to reinvent yourself if your basic needs are not taken care of. And this comes straight from Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you don't have somewhere to to sleep and health care and food and clothing, then self-actualization is impossible. And that was what I wrote as my idea word spreading for TEDx. Now the funny part about it I sent in that application, and I'll never forget, it was a Sunday night. I get the call from an unknown number, and I answer the phone because I think it's a telemarketer. And I am all up in my feelings. I'm flying, you know, how should I say it? I'm being absolutely horrible. I answer the phone, I think it's a telemarketer, and I'm going to tell this person that it is 8 o'clock on a Sunday night. Go back to school, do something with your life. That is what I was thinking to tell them. The phone rings and the person says, as soon as I say hello, they go, Cece, this is Eric from TEDx. And I'm thinking to myself like, Holy smokes, I am so glad that I had not said what I thought to say. And he said, we'd like to invite you to be a TEDx speaker. And so that's it. That's exactly how that happened. And so you're rehearsing for the speech, you're rehearsing, you're getting all the lines down to the point, to a point where you feel very comfortable on stage. You go practice. They tell you, based on what you've told me, that you can't leave this red circle. And the drum up to this event, was it nerve wracking or did you just feel comfortable in your own skin? It was incredibly nerve wracking. And I think that's when I met you because what I decided to do was go to all the different Toastmaster clubs and practice my speech. And I think I had you evaluate me because I, you had the reputation of being a very, very tough evaluator. And so I was like, okay, I need Hector Suko to evaluate me. <laughs> all on based on your reputation. And from there, everybody that gave me an evaluation, I looked at it, I tweaked my speech, said, okay, does this fit? Does this resonate? Is this 
keeping the essence of what I want to say. And so I will tell you that what I originally planned to say and what I ended up saying on the TEDx stage, two totally different speeches. But they were all powerful. It was just for my audience on TEDx that I, I gave the speech I needed to give. But incredibly nerve-wracking. So. Well, how about actually when the moment came? I mean, when for me... When they introduce me, yeah, my nerves start, you know, the butterflies go, are going. And then once I get up there, because I've rehearsed so much, I don't get nervous. I know what my job is and I deliver. And definitely Toastmasters has helped strengthen the fact that the butterflies don't go off when I'm speaking. With Toastmasters and your ability to speak when you stepped onto that red circle were the nerves still kicking or you were in control i was in total control i had been playing my playlist backstage i used every toastmaster technique i used the humor i used the body language i used the power of the pause and I have to say that it was one of the most exhilarating experiences of my life. Now, one thing that I had done beforehand was I was in the audience and I was talking to people. And so when I got on stage, they already knew and loved me. And they were like, oh my goodness, she was just sitting here with us. And so I already had the audience. I, I was already connected with the audience, which is something that they teach us in Toastmasters, right? And honestly, I cannot say enough about Toastmasters, but you do not have to be a Toastmaster to be a TEDx speaker. Two separate things. That was just my journey. That's where I really learned a lot of the speaking techniques. And so when I got on stage, oh, I was in the zone. To the point, they gave us, they gave me seven minutes. There's a big clock that only I can see. The audience can't see it. I'm given my three points. Because, you know, in Toastmasters, there's a format. Great opening, three points, wrap up with a great close. I get to my third point and I look down and I am out of time. I just cut out a whole section. Because the audience was laughing and it was taking up my time, which is something we know can easily happen. I did not want the AV crew to cut my mic because they do cut it if you go over time. I just took out a whole point. And just went right to my clothes. Yeah. Incredible story. Incredible transformation, CC. I mean, this is this is great. Um, so let's go back to the issue of prisons, which your speech was about and that you experienced personally and you do speak on. What can the average person do to make sure that our prison systems are fair, that convicts or felons 
get a fair share at life once they've served their time? You know, that's a very interesting question. And for me personally, the, the system is unfair. There's no one, there's no doubt about it. But while the media may make it seem like certain demographics go to prison way more than others, which is somewhat true, nobody's immune. Nobody's immune to going to prison. What I have found to be beneficial, instead of ranting at the injustices of the system, is to change the way I act. If I'm doing right, if I'm doing the absolute best I can do every single day, and giving gratitude, saying thanks, and the people I surround myself with are doing the same thing, that is what I've really found to be the best solution. Because truthfully, none of us, you don't change anything by ranting and raving. Martin Luther King said in one of his speeches, you can only change something from within. You cannot change it from without. And that, that's the same thing for us. We cannot change ourselves from without. We have to go inside to change things. And that's whether we want to lose weight, we want to go back to school, whatever it is, the change starts first on the inside. You're absolutely right. But there are practices that we can definitely put in place to make life better for those who have served their time. If you're an employer and you have complete control of the application process. There's a campaign out there called ban the box. And what it says is that employers should not add, have you ever been convicted of a felon? Yes or no, a felony or whatever. Um, and that campaign's purpose is to get rid of that question. Because if somebody has served their time, they shouldn't answer yes, they shouldn't have to answer yes to that question because we all know based on our biases that their chances of getting that job now are slim to none. I mean, yes, we can think of employers as just fair and they're going to give it to the person that, that really deserves it. But, and even if it's that, that if, even if the person that truly deserves it based on the interview is the person is the felon, their biases may not are, their biases are probably not conducive to giving them that job. And so if you want to join that campaign, or if you are an employer and getting rid of that box is part of that solution, would you not say, yes, do it? Okay, what you're saying has merit. So let me just clear up something. We don't serve time because nobody does it voluntarily, okay? So ex-offenders don't serve time, they do time, all right? So just a little technicality. Now, here, when it comes to ban the box campaign, what it says is that if an employer is getting funds from the federal government, they cannot ask that question on the initial application. So that gives people 
the opportunity to show up in the best light possible. Now, if a job does not require or is not influenced by, say, somebody's background, uh, their criminal history background, there is no need to ask that question. However, if there's a job involving, say, money or taking care of children or our elders, yes, then that's probably something you need to know. If you're going to be a graphic designer, a photographer, a cook, probably absolutely no reason to ask that question on any part of the application. A teacher, a nurse, bank teller, yes, you probably want to know if somebody has been away. So, ban the box just simply says that you cannot ask that question on the initial application which gives the ex-offender an opportunity to compete for a job on an equal footing almost till the end. So that's what Ban the Box is. And I actually support Ban the Box. I think it's, it's a great idea. It's absolutely a great idea. It gives people a second chance. Right, but I would push back a little bit on that and say, why not? If somebody is made a bad decision, quote unquote, in their life and Rob tried to rob a bank, didn't, and they went to prison for a year, they've owned up to their mistake. They did the time. They got out. They passed their probation. Right. And so you can't work at a bank now. It, it just feels as if it's unjust. Wow, wow. When you put it like that, I guess you're right. But do you want to take the chance of having somebody who's done time as a bank robber controlling your money? Absolutely. And I'll tell you what, that interview get ready to see some fireworks, right? It doesn't have to be the bank that you, that they attempted to steal from. That would just be too dramatic. But yeah, if I'm the interviewer and I'm the owner of that bank, I'm going to say, you tried to rob a bank. Why do you want to work for us? Why should okay. I hire you? And they All have right. to show up. They're going to have to show up and I'm going to have to look straight into their eyes. And if I trust them, and if I truly believe that they're going to be working for me and not for themselves, I'm hiring them. Okay. All right. Now I would, I would, this is where I would go. This is where I would go. Instead of working as a bank teller, can I put you in loss prevention? It's right. it, yeah. A job is a job, right? Can I put you in security? Because now you know the things to look for for, you know, you know the holes in the system. So that, that's what I'm saying. You have to go for the right job, all right? You have to go for the right job. I was, many years ago, I was talking to a young lady. She was, I think, in her early 30s. 
had never worked a regular job. Never. She was what we, you called a booster. She would go in and she would shoplift. She had done this all her life. Now came time for her to get, get a job. She had to get a, a, a job. She went to one of the large companies and she got hired in loss prevention because she knew what boosters, how they looked, their mindset when they came in. So when somebody is going to boost something or shoplift, they wear certain clothes, they act a certain way, their mannerism is certain ways. And so she was able to write manuals or what we call standard operating procedure documents on these are the things to look out for. So while she couldn't be maybe a cashier, she could definitely work in loss prevention. Cece, I want to thank you so much for coming on to my podcast. I really, really appreciate it. And I am really grateful for our conversation. Hey, this was your, your TEDx speech elongated to an hour, and I just could not get enough of it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Cece, please tell us more about you. Where can people find you, etc. All right. So you can find me of course, on social media under my name. And then you can also email me at espute, E-S-P-E-U-T dot C-C at gmail.com. And one of the things that I'm really doing and I'm really, really passionate about is having people tell, not tell their story, but present ideas on the TEDx stage in the way of stories. And so I am doing a master class. It's usually the first week of every month. But if you email me, I will send you a free PDF of five ways to get rejected by TEDx, which it's a very, very popular ebook. Five ways to get rejected by TEDx. And it kind of gives you an idea of how you can use your ideas that are worth spreading to get on the TEDx stage. Thank you very, very much for having me. This has been an absolute pleasure. Cece, any last thoughts? No, I can't wait to see you on the Red Dot Hector. I'll be asking you very soon, what is your idea worth spreading? Thank you again, Cece. I really, really appreciate you coming on. This has been From Prison to TEDx Speaker with Cece S. Butte. This will do it for this episode of the Life Teacher Podcast. Until next time. Bye.